Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 58, Contemplative Conversation 13. We're back with Mr. West Chance. Mr. West Chance, welcome. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. You've caught me abroad now. Since my school year just ended last week, I've come now back to Nashville to visit my mother, stepfather, cousins, and stepbrother. And I'm, I'm back in the home, which I've been returning to for several years now. And so it's a good time. So if the acoustics sound different, it's because I'm in a different space from usual and there might be a dog. So I apologize for that in advance. <laughs> no, I love dogs. And, and I love that feeling of being back home for the summer. That's, I mean, it's like, for me, at least that's when I get all kinds of crazy ideas about all the things I'm going to accomplish over the summer with all my free time. And it's just that, that lovely um, end of the school year feeling. Yeah. I'm almost well, there. you know, you've done it again. You've done it again, Wes. It, there's something about the things that you say that draw everything back to a center. And okay. I was thinking about that as I just revolved around um, uh, uh, our, our oven, not our oven, but our microwave mm. um, sort of island. And so it, it is funny that what we seem to be talking about whenever we talk about things is home and the process of yeah. uh, coming out from the home and beginning in a home and building one's own home and one's stages along the journey uh, uh, what, in relation to the home. And that seems to be what the home serves as, right? Both a beginning and an end. Um, the start of the journey, the place from which you start, and also the place uh, from, towards which you go, the ideal. It's sort of like an Eden and earthly or and a heavenly paradise. I, that you start off in an embodied place or a, a real place that has an ideal covering over it because you're naive and relatively unconscious. And so you're spending the beginning of your existence uh, imprinting on the things around you, which then become the ideals, which I've recently learned is something humans actually do um, from the book, A Billion Wicked Thoughts, which I hope we get a chance to talk about today. But um, yeah. um, but it's, it's so interesting because um, I thought about you when I was sitting at home today and I was sort of lonely for a moment and made me start to reflect on the fact that you can never go home again for the same reason that you can never step in the same stream twice. Since we occupy not just the space, but space-time with other conscious individuals who are constantly acquiring and disseminating information and engaging in new subroutines and pursuing new ideals and indulging in new feelings and behaviors, whenever you go home again, you carry new information and are essentially a new being, and so are the beings with whom you interact. And thus your relationships, though you might demarcate them with the same names, you might even fall into the same routines that you were in in former years, it, it's like putting on clothes that don't quite fit. Hmm. Or yeah. just exactly right anymore, depending on how often you go home and how close you are with your family. It's When you return home, you seem to be attempting to return to a more naive or primitive state of consciousness where everything seemed like it was going to be all right, where there was less that you had to worry about, less anxiety about the future in the world. Things seemed laid out and stable in a way that your experience yeah. of the world now keeps you from, keeps you from seeing things as because you just, yeah. Have, yeah. The old, like, Going home, I, I guess, is is sort of opens up the question of of where home is for people. And 
I don't know, like, I only grew up in one place, but I know a lot of people have have moved around at some point during their, um, you know, their childhood or whatever. Um, and and when you go back to that place, you know, it's it's, of course, changed from when you were there. But but it's also sort of a, a matter, like you're saying, of the difference between the place as it actually is or was and the place as you experienced it and and as you imagined it might have been. And and I think there's there's even a kind of like to me, there's a question of what um, what the proper sort of home for a person is supposed to look like. Like, is it is it actually, you know, it's like uh, on the first page of Augustine's Confessions, right? Like he's got this kind of longing for for something which has never been actually um, uh, satisfied in the world. And so he's he sort of takes that that concept that that unbridgeable distance between what he imagines and what is and then sort of leaps you know has that 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 leap of faith to the thing which you might call uh, a heaven or or some kind of paradise or whatever but it's it seems like it's kind of built into that that situation of um your your imagination of a place your imagination of the experience of that place and then what you actually observe when you go and you look at it again um it's yeah. all sort of kind of built into that yeah let me see if i can root a couple of those those notions because i i thought there were several that were very good especially i want to talk about the imaginal existence of a place in relation to the actual place itself and uh your your example of augustine and his longing for a place and you use the expression leap of faith and that made me yeah. wonder uh, Without making an initial assumption, you, you cannot use propositional logic. You cannot even reason. So without staking something into the ground, you cannot create a territory about which you are going to prowl and make your own in a Lockean sense by working it. And yeah. that works with us as abstract symbolic creatures in psychological spaces too. And so we talk about you know your space being, if you'd say you're a particle physicist, you know all about like this one telescope or laser or something mm. like that. And we say, that's your business or, or that's your area. Field. In fact, we say that's your field, right? We actually literally say that's your field or area using the territorial uh, mm. language. And um, so when, uh, <laughs> sorry, my characteristic losing of my thought when we go out on a branch, I've been doing this over on the uh, West world too. I think I did it seven times once <laughs> the other day. I'm, I'm brain addled because I'm always walking in circles while I do this and I burn 300 calories. And I, my Fitbit tells me this. So it's yeah. incredible. Uh, well, so, so you start from, uh, you said you're going to anchor and then we went out on a branch. Okay. Yeah. But... The leap of, <laughs> the leap of faith. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. You got me. So the leap of faith, uh, I wonder to what extent that is planting, well, planting your seed, but also staking your claim staking out a territory even intellectually or in terms of home this is going to be the place that i treat like heaven i'm not i'm not going to the idea is it doesn't seem to be that you you search forever for a place which is the ideal which you just come upon but rather mm -hmm. that you have to stake a place and have the faith that you can using your psychology your consciousness your sophistication enculturate and renew and rejuvenate and improve the place around you so much that it begins to resemble to some extent your ideal conception. 
And mm. that seems to be actually what makes you like defined as a good or great man that uh, you use this, you use the energy that you could devote to, or, you know, that you could not use in laziness and apathy, or that you could, uh, you could use for willful malevolence or uh, staying in people's way in people's ways in order to make everything around you better. Mm-hmm. And in pursuing this ideal and in, in, uh, maintaining this eternal agony, this eternal suffering of longing after the ideal and being able to maintain that within yourself, that's what pushes you both forward from behind and draws you forward from the front. Because not only do you experience the positive emotion of pursuing something which is meaningful to you, which gives you a dopaminergic hit, uh, like what cocaine does, uh, but this, of course, is the actual reason why you're supposed to get that kick. You also have um, pushing you from the back, which, you know, if you've ever been in love and long distance from the person that you love, I think since you are to uh, aspire towards get to the original ideal, the more sophisticated your conception of the ideal becomes and thus more sophisticated the products in the world you can produce and therefore more reflective of the ideal that you're Mm -hmm. pursuing, the better you get at idealizing. But you can't get better at idealizing without initially pursuing something, without making an initial stake. So whether your your city be Pittsburgh or Chicago or LA or New York, it's got to be, that's got to be your home. And prob- probably an even smaller place uh, within there. Ever because in your heart, it already is the best place ever in the future, which you are going to help to create through your everyday actions in the present. And so you get to constantly yeah. embody both yeah, the so present the, the kind and the future, of the and actually the best aspects of the future. Includes this kind um, of idea of what yeah. you're planting there now you're going to see through to it's to cultivate it and to keep working that, that ground to see some kind of fruit come out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need to see the ultimate flowering. So like, say Mm. you're, you're a park, uh, you're, you, you plant parks like the old Persian Kings and you see, you plant the trees and they take the longest to grow because they get the largest. And so you don't even need to see the full flowering of them in order to understand where they will get and therefore have sort of that circumspect way of looking at, um, at the situation. You get both uh, the pre, that which led to the, the first causes of the park and all that had to go into that, and then the actual making of the park. And then you see that the principles on which the park were founded we're actually stable and real because the park starts to grow and so do the plants within it. And so, I mean, there's a whole socio-political and biological element underlying it. Like the, the people have to be stable enough to defend this land. The people have to be aesthetic enough to love art and parks and nature. They have to be smart enough to know how to work the ground and, and, and again, artistic enough to want to ornament the ground with some interesting structure. And, and, that needs to be, and as uh, mm-hmm. which is suggested, the more 
Sorry. Sorry, I think I lost you there. All right, sorry about that. Looks like we we got dropped for a second, and I blame this national internet, which we are not accustomed to. So I apologize if this has happened or happens again. Uh, uh, yeah, Wes, are yeah, you there for now? <laughs> All right. Well, a welcome back. And so I think we were talking about home, and just to go to a slight different direction from from talking about staking one's claim. Well, well, let's finish that point. Actually, now that I recall where we were. I, I take the leap of faith to be faith that the future is worth working towards um, that or trust that the future is worth working towards. And that's what the great leap of faith is. Um, in fact, if you think about a leap, what direction are you going? And if you think about the Chinese cultural revolution, not that that's a very, very helpful to the, to the as support to my claim here, uh, uh, they called right, it the Great yeah. Leap Forward, right? And revolution is generally considered revolutionary because it is progressive, not generally because it is yeah. regressive. And so, and so, hmm. I, and it, it does strike me that, just to amplify that for a second, that the great moments of life tend to be leaps forward, right? Like one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, uh, Neil mm -hmm. Armstrong, and and also I consider even like sort of the act of birth, right? It's as if you are leaving forth, being mm -hmm. sprung forth into the world. And I actually just realized that the alien eggs from from uh, Geiger's um, alien series are sort of supposed to be inverted. Uh, uh, they seem to be inverted uh, female sexual oh. parts. Um, so it took me a long time to understand why that was such a weird and creepy image um, besides the fact that face huggers jump out from that but yeah just because it, it's something sort of familiar but also deeply unfamiliar and so right you know sort of what is it they call it an animation the zone which is too close for comfort that makes humans a skin crawl yeah <laughs> no I, I i was just thinking about the well to to talk about the claim of of faith being in in some sense towards future oriented that seems that seems right, right. but it all i mean it could also be in the sense of um believing that there is such a place as a home that's proper to you you know that there that there is such a thing at all seems to be something that might actually not be the case for a lot of people you know people who've been displaced or or can't get back to where they were from or when they do go back find that what they imagined is far from what was the case or is the case. So, I mean, and that does seem, that, yeah, that, that just, it just seems like that, that, um, that sort of faith, uh, can in some sense be, um, be present or even past oriented, uh, as to the nature of home itself, um, as well as being future oriented toward, towards the possibility of it existing in, in, in the time to come. That's incredible. I, uh, 
Sorry, I haven't been able to hear you again. And so as I was detailing out, um, losing home, whether it be in a psychological way or a physical way, um, seems to naturally lead to resentment because something has been taken from you specifically and not from everybody else around you. And so you feel singled out in a negative way. And since your natural environment, all humans natural environment is a social environment, we attribute agency to the destruction of our initial worldview and not to our own decisions or, or just say objective or random factors, but to some sort of figure. Um, uh, that figure is often called God, or it could be called the patriarchy. It could be called any number of things. It's an archetype. And uh, one, the initial Luciferian reaction is resentment against that. But you were just de detailing out the, a beautiful aspect of a human, because in fact, the notion of home over just territory does come from humans. That which is specific mm -hmm. to it does seem that the original story in almost every mythology is, is human in home, home shifts human enters chaos, how does human build new home? Right. And that story has just been getting more and more abstract over time because you have that original naive worldview where you're essentially like uh, a goose. I believe uh, geese, geese imprint on the first large moving object, they see, <laughs> which is generally their mother. But it, if you just think about those criterion for imprinting, We've actually found in a billion wicked thoughts these these two computer scientists or not computer scientists but um, what is it computational neuroscientists use and so that leads often to um, men having different men having different huh. perceptions of what is ideal in the feminine. And so rather than having, like, say, an inbuilt form, uh, they, it seems that somebody embodies the form for them at a specific important time during adolescence. Uh. And then, boom, that's the ideal in their mind forever. And it's subject to certain, certain parameters as well. Um, there are certain things that uh, male visual cues look for. Um, and it's all very interesting. And all this data was taken... <laughs> yeah yeah uh that isn't i uh, mean i've still there i've not had a chance to read that yet um i put in a, a request through the the library to try to get a copy of um of the his of the history of consciousness is that what it's called by by neumann yeah yeah oh the, the origin and history of consciousness yeah so 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 basically what these billion uh, Wicked Thoughts guys do, do is they come through the internet for jar, large data sets on different male and female um, uh, uh, yeah. how do I say illustrations of desire so they look through men's data on viewing pornography and women's data uh, not only on habits for say romance novels and so they come out in giant data aggregate with these statistics that suggest that there are fundamental differences in how females and men and males approach sexual desire and relationships towards each other and how they perceive each other. And they've rooted that also in discovering 
um, similar behavior in large primates as well birds as well as uh, lab specimens like specimen like rats and they've also found that there's similar circuitry in our brains specific primates on which they're doing the studies so it's incredible it's incredible the things they're they're doing and just just to bring him up for a moment our uh, our friend dr jordan b peterson who is <laughs> he doesn't yet know he's our friend but he is um who's recently come under fire we 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 have several friends on the internet uh, world who uh, they seem to love to quote him and to, to disparage his views and to talk about how a particular word he used could not be right in that particular context. And then they just talk about the word and they just springboard off that. If you were to read a billion wicked thoughts, you would see, I think a large source of a great bit of the most, um, of the most fire hot data that he shares. Some of the biggest claims he make find their sources in giant swathes of internet data that these two neuroscientists from Boston have acquired. And so it's, it's using a tool that we've never had access to to show our habits in numbers yeah. we have never seen before. And so if you think about it correctly, it is the most accurate representation of human nature that we have ever had. Um, because it, not only does the data come from the U.S., it comes from several different countries all around the world. So certain claims about cultural universals or human universals can be observed in the data. All you have to do is put the numbers next to each other and see it for yourself. And it, it's incredible. It's incredible. So, it, you know, it is the opposite of making subjective ideological claims. It is presenting extremely objective data in numbers yeah. we have never, ever had access to via a tool we've only been using for like 20 years. Yeah, it's like, like a, a snapshot years. into, uh, uh, well, I mean, what would normally be thought of as a private part of your life, I guess, but sort of a no longer... Right. And even as psychological surveys go, they didn't have to survey humans who often are untruthful about their behaviors due to guilt and yeah. shame. And so here, you know, and you might consider the ethicality of the fact that they got access to all of this data. But I, I would say that that is sort of a puritanical way of looking at this. I, we, we are subject to data acquisition. And I don't mean to sound tyrannical about that. But I mean, for scientific purposes, in order to improve our quality of being, just as much as any other animal, I mean, even more so because we're so complex and complicated. I mean, I think we should. And I mean, what are we doing when we read literature and watch movies and listen to songs? These are all produced by humans, right? And then we live in these homes we're talking about with all this art and these rugs and these functional systems like the plumbing and the electricity within them and the Internet, not to mention. And it's like, well, how, how, what, who produced all of that? And so he's sort of like a psychic yeah, being, right. which is embodied in the world. And <laughs> well, we're so interesting and so much more complex than any other creature that's ever existed. That it strikes me that we should, we should be asking these sorts of questions that these men ask, and we should be accessing this sort of data in order some of these perennial questions because we now have tools that we have never ever had access to.
You still there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you again, it caught out a little bit there, but I caught. Well, the, I think I was just saying because just we've never that, had so. tools that we've ever had access to. We can discover truths or patterns that are larger than we've ever been able to see. Patterns that we've only ever had to spec on. And I don't know. It's making me want to go become a computational neuros <laughs> neuroscientist yeah. just so I can look at some of this data and start making. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that was talking the other about thing home I guess we were trying to talk about. Coming home. And if, so if something interesting. Permit, uh, is... Oh, yeah. And so we were talking before we got out again. And I'm sorry to the viewers about this. I'm now connected to Wi Fi. Maybe that will help. Maybe it won't help. Uh, back to the idea of home. And it made me think of Bookworm Games, your current project on Anchor and on YouTube as well, uh, Wes, and uh -huh. your, your invitation to me to talk about um, uh, uh, Earthbound or just to talk on your show that is generally about Earthbound. And it made me think about the subject of the game of Earthbound, which seems to be so rooted in the mundane and mm -hmm. the home and to be modeled after an actual young boy's life and how symbolically all the normal things we run into are the things that one runs into on a heroic quest, suggesting that each young man in general uh, walks the hero's journey and thing ever, but also completely isomorphic with all the mm -hmm. other humans. And being isomorphic, having the same nature, also having the same end, essentially. But um, what's so interesting about that game which is so close to your heart, which is an expression suggesting that it is something that one might find in a special place at your home, mm -hmm. like in the chest. Um, you play such video games in the home, usually in sort of a sacred space, right? Either on the living room in front of the great TV, which while we were growing up was the one TV, or mm -hmm. in your own room as, a, as sort of an extension of your own individuality and your responsibility as a young person. Mm -hmm. And you got to further explore worlds created by man with a narrative structure that appealed to you in the comfort of your own home. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. makes me sort of think about the, the, that might be sort of the, um, the notion underlying an earthbound or even like a stranger things that the dark underworld exists in any space that humans inhabit any home, the right. snake in the garden exists in any place. The hero's journey exists in any form in any place where humans exist, even in a mundane little suburb. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great because you, yeah, you start out. Um, and then as you go through the game at a certain point, you'll eventually have to circle back and, and visit home again. Um, and uh, everything is, um, is totally different when you, when you visit again, there's, the the uh the normal citizens are all at home and hiding and uh the whole town is dark ah. and there's monsters um so yeah it's it's very stranger let's find esque. yeah that, that reminds me of right now everything is dark out here on the east uh not the east coast but in the central region in tennessee huh. uh i'm all alone in a house 
bigger than the apartment I'm generally in. And I suppose there may be monsters like my own inner demons and personal memories of misdeeds lurking about <laughs> I have to be alone and thus projecting my feelings out into the world around me, creating specters. Yeah. Like Scrooge in a Christmas carol. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, and so that reminds me of my favorite game growing up too. And I know we're not getting into this conversation quite uh, yet, but we're just giving people, I think, a taste of things to come. But it was Final Fantasy VII, of course, which I know you brought up in your recent podcast with, was it Steve? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and that the notion there is that the original home you find yourself in is not actually your home. And there might be some dogs barking pretty soon. Okay. But that it's this dumpy little... That everything... Sorry. No, I'm not hearing dogs barking, but I'm not hearing you either. Of your consciousness comes about with the extension of your world or the extension ah, of the okay. world extends your consciousness because what was your world, your entire environment, your neighborhood was this this subsector of Midgard, this under, under uh, a shield plate, like essentially underground Morlock-esque existence where you can't even yeah. see the sun. And then you finally get out of this sector, sector eight, I think, of the city. So it's just one small sector and one large city, which is one city on the face of a giant world. Yeah. And you the world and you're like, oh my God. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of the Final Fantasy games do that sort of thing where you, you, um, you have one world map and then it will switch at a certain point in the game. Ah. But um, what Final Fantasy VII does is really interesting. Yeah, you start out in this, you're kind of stuck in the city um, for, for a pretty long portion of the game. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we were kind of joking about. It was like how Steve's brother would make him play that part over and over when their <laughs> file got corrupted. <laughs> so he got really good at that part of the game. Uh, but then, uh, you know, so then eventually after like an hour or two of gameplay, you're finally like, you're, you're out into the, the, the field, right. Onto the world map. And so you get to, yes. the yeah. you get to see actually your first chocobo and your first snake. Right. So, so it's interesting that you, you experience the first snake just outside of the city, um, going with that sort of Celtic or not Celtic, excuse me, Nordic um, mm -hmm. symbolism they're using. Of course, Midgard is what it's called, is the Middle Earth, um, mm -hmm. which you can get from watching the Thor movies now. Um, yeah. But, um, uh, and this seems to be the snake, this uh, Midgard basilisk seems to be something like the snake that eats at Yggdrasil. And so very interesting that right. it's still outside the city in this way. And well, I look forward to interpreting just what all that means with you when we when we do get to that and well so yeah. so was it was it this week that we were going to do that you when were you inviting me to bookworm games was it tomorrow or was it the week no, after no. following so i've got i've got some material for tomorrow about moonside and that'll close okay. this chapter chapter as i think of it of of the game and so after this week after tomorrow then anytime next week that you're free we should talk and That'll be the following week's episode, yeah. Okay, wonderful. And we'll also get uh, Castle in the Sky in the books, mm -hmm. too. And I'll make sure to 
be in a place where the internet is a little more cooperative, but still at these beginning uh, free stages where we're just doing this as a hobby, I would say working towards trying to do this, you know, more seriously, developing serious yeah. material, but not making serious coin yet. You know, I think that sort of thing is going to happen. And it shows just that, you know, we're working on the road. We're working during times when we would not normally be working. This is where we put in work. And so I, I think occasionally well, it's, it's funny. It's funny to think about. So even the, the big shots, right? You saw, I think you saw the, uh, the recent one between um, Dr. Peterson and Steven Pinker. Where yes. the phone kept ringing. <laughs> phone kept yes, ringing. yeah, and I think I think that was Pinker's phone, but yes, it just kept ringing. Yeah, and I remember once watching Peterson, his camera cut out, and he he was narrating the whole event to keep his cool, and uh, the camera turns back on, and you see him yelling at his son, "What the hell is the camera doing? Turning off right now?" And I could just—it's funny. Some people gave him some grief, like "Don't yell at your son." He's like, "No, no, he's my son, and he messed up, and so that's fine." And it's—and uh, <laughs> it's just sort of funny because I could totally see, like, if I, you know, if I had like a son dealing with that, and it's like, I, you know, a million people are going to watch this. It needs to work, and yeah. it cuts out right in the middle of this. I, I could see being, you know, a, I think that was some good restraint, actually. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's like part. you recognize we're, we're all subject to this technology that, at least for my part, I don't understand how to fix if it doesn't work. So oh, right. It just comes with the territory. So, yeah. yeah, it just comes with the territory. There's, there's the home we've staked so far. Yeah. We don't quite understand it, but we're going to continue to explore it. And, well, yeah, yeah maybe we can even do these more frequently uh, throughout sure. the summer, Wes. And maybe I can even talk about some more personal topics, too, like, uh, just to wet the listeners' ears a little bit, I, I have a potential opportunity to leave the craft of teaching for a related but not the same craft, and perhaps I can talk through with Mr. Chance, who, who better than Mr. Chance, uh, that sort of decision and what it would entail. Um, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, and uh, something I didn't, we didn't get to talk about this time, which is uh, there's a book that I'm reading in connection with A Billion Wicked Thoughts. I mentioned the book title, but not what it's about, The Origin and History of Consciousness by Eric Neumann. That is one of the yeah. books on which Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning, he says it's based. He says, in fact, he thinks his book has been written four times, and The Origins and History of Consciousness were one version. Symbols of Transformation by Jung is another version, and The Denial of Death by the psychoanalyst Ernst Becker was a third edition. Hmm. I own that, but I haven't read it yet. And so basically what this details out is in cultural mythology and mythological rituals, symbols, and stories that the origins of consciousness are detailed out by the myths of people and the transformations of consciousness throughout life from, say, birth and your, 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 uh, your nascent ego all the way towards death and acceptance of it, essentially, and that there are mythological symbols and stories that represent this entire path of existence for humans and that parts of, and because of this, the archetypal story which a human lives has archetypal roles within it which cannot change regardless of our language or our desires, uh, though how they are embodied specifically can change. And that this leads to some of the arguments that are being put forward today about social constructionism being utterly destroyed um, right. by the fact that not only uh, mythologically, ethnic graphically, psychologically, 
uh, worldwide and over all time, we have found these symbols to be representative of the same process of adaptation in the world. And yeah. so, you know, we're going to weed out some bad thoughts, I think, in the, the next several, <laughs> well, over the next span of time conceivable. Um, yeah, it's a little summer reading there. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, a little summer reading. Yeah, and a little summer slim down too. <laughs> All right, or a little summer, you know, a little summer wildfire. To mention my my <clears throat> San Diegan roots. All right, well, All right. this has been great. Thank you for carving out some time with me today. It's weird to be on a different uh, hour from you, uh, yeah. Wes. I guess it's still light out there for you. I'm two hours ahead of yeah, you right another, now. I think that's correct. Yeah, another Saturday night here. Yeah, another Spoken. Saturday night talking about great things. And well, you know, uh, just one thing to conclude on is people have been asking me lately what the podcast is about and how I describe it. It's basically it's like NPR, <laughs> right. uh, NPR culture segment where exactly. basically yeah. we sit down and we and we talk, and the main feature is the fact of our conversation and the subjects I think we choose are interesting and creative and, um, and are are generally accessible to most people. But I I would say that we're, you know, we're like an all things considered culture segment from NPR, not to try and steal anything from national public radio, except for just to try and give somebody an identifiable way to describe us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, I like NPR, I like what they do. Um, I really like their their program, This American Life. And yes. I mean, that's that's obviously more of a kind of narrative sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's along the lines of a of a of a, a radio show, like where or or like you sometimes describe it. I think like a PBS kind of sit down and chat kind of. Ep- yeah, I forget what. What's that guy, Tavis Smiley? You know, he's got that show. If that's still on, I don't know. I used to watch it when I was a kid sometimes. So yeah, Bob Ross, yeah, the, the joy of pain. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, vaguely, vaguely like that. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, and um, I continue to maintain that you are the next Mister Rogers. You've got that gentle edge to your voice, and so we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see how it all pans out. But yeah. okay, all right. Well. Okay. Well, thank you for your time then, Mr. Chance. Wes, I'm looking forward to hearing your podcast, Bookworm Games, tomorrow. Um, And I'm looking forward to doing another one of these very, very, very soon. So listeners, look out. We may be popping out some of these fast. Yeah, this this summer, like I said, yeah, it could be a little more consistent, uh, I hope. And uh, yeah, well, thanks again. Till next time. Thank you. Till next time.